Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, November 21st episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com, as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have featured over 135 poets in 16 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit cards. With us today is Yehya Baraka El Rudaini, with whom I will be discussing their poem, Cleaning the Graves, and my poem, Rubicon. And now let us welcome our poet guest of the week, Yehya Baraka El Rudaini. Hi, Yehya. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Well, thank you. It's such a joy to be here with you. I've ever since you mentioned this, I was listening to the podcast, and I was like, oh, I like this. This is wonderful. <laughs> cool. I really appreciate that. Very, very <laughs> appreciative of everybody's support. So uh, you brought with your, your poem, Cleaning the Graves. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. So I am a non-binary poet. I kind of got into slam poetry. I used to write a since I was 10 years old. I mean, well, what you classify as a poem when you're 10 years old is just like grabbing a piece of paper and writing some gibberish. You're like, this made me feel things. <laughs> I took a hiatus. I was re- writing really cringy poems, uh, as everyone um, does that mm-hmm. when they're young, going mm-hmm. through puberty. And I came to America to do my master's degree, mm-hmm. and I kind of got into uh, slam poetry because I went to uh, Boston, uh, Boston Poetry Slam, mm-hmm. which was at the Cantab before it, before it closed because of COVID. Mm-hmm. It was like a bucket list kind of thing. And I, and I was like, wait a minute, I like this too much. I'm <laughs> going to be hanging around. So my poems kind of took on a form of like preferring to be spoken rather than to be read. Mm. And uh, I'm also uh, I'm a scientist in training. I am in a neuroscience PhD program cool. uh, with uh, Tufts. I'm currently in Maine, and it's uh, it's it's really wonderful here. The place I'm in, uh, Jackson Laboratory. I really I'm not saying this because of propaganda or corporate <laughs> things, but I really uh, I think it's uh, every scientist. I don't know if I can say wet dream, but uh, it's, a, it's a every scientist dream to be at Jackson here for me. Mm-hmm. And um, as you can tell from my name, I I'm, wasn't born here. I was born and raised in Iraq, mm-hmm. Baghdad, mm-hmm. straight in the capital. And uh, but there was lots of experiences for me because I went through the 2003 invasion mm-hmm. by America. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, kind of like there was lots. People don't realize this, but when people label the end of the war was like 2007 or something like that, I I, I, I kind of uh, like erased that back in my head mm-hmm. because a lot of kind of uh, wars were opened up. So I write because of that, and also I am gay and non-binary. Mm-hmm. I tend to write a lot of stuff about 
about my experiences. So that's kind of like what if you, I don't know if you're looking up online. Uh, actually, don't look up online. There's a really bad picture of me from the TAPS website. Um, but if you <laughs> come across me in uh, a poetry journal, perhaps, like that's the kind of content you would expect from me. It's like some sadness. Sometimes there's a good poem in there. And sometimes there's a gay poem <laughs> involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think we as poets tend to write a lot. Well, no matter what, even if we're not writing a poem that directly involves our experiences, we are still writing it, right? So no matter what, we are inside the poems. Yes, I do. I do agree with that. It's like, I mean, it's kind of like similar for every kind of art, just like part of us is in the poem. Mm-hmm. I think it's also kind of like we're trying to make sense of it but also we want to well we want to I feel like the art finds the artist mm-hmm. it's just like you don't control all right it's just like you feel fantastic like all of a sudden like someone sees someone painting and be like I like that I'm gonna do that or like there's something inside that drives you into creating or crafting that art which I think is really beautiful about it it's just I think that's also one of the reasons just like I want to be a scientist and a poet at the same time. Maybe I can do both. Someone must have done that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You're definitely not the first scientist I have interviewed. Scientist, poet. I've interviewed entomologists, uh, somebody who works on soil science, somebody who's in engineering, somebody who's in IT. So there are different fields of science and, and technology who are also poets and they each bring their own more personality than anything else, but also, you know, their own ways of viewing the world. There's really no uniformity, I think, uh, even within the scientific field, even within the poetry field. Any, anything is just every bit of ourselves, color, our art, and vice versa. You know, art also changes the way we look at the world. Thank you. Thank you. But... Uh... I remember also it was uh, when I was talking to there was a friend who goes to the to the Canton uh, at the Boston Poetry Slam when I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Abraham, wonderful person. They are also like a scientist and also a poet, a really mm-hmm. good poet. Like their mm-hmm. work is so good. Mm-hmm. I remember at the time being like, I think we are both outliers, <laughs> but this makes me happy that we're just uh, also the word outlier. Mm-hmm. Just like very data. <laughs> uh, I'm just, uh, that makes me happy. It's just like, but also it makes sense because science is stressful by nature. It's just mm-hmm. like, I wish it was like the new, the movies or TV shows. It's like you take a sample and you put it into this machine and just like take, gives you everything, all the graphs and just analyze it on holographic screens. But no, it's just literally just bashing your head against the bench, hoping something. <laughs> I was wondering, going back to your poetry, in terms of uh, the poem you wrote when you were 10, do you remember what you wrote about? This is very silly, but when I was young, I was really a big fan of Pokemon, Uh (laughs) the TV show. Uh So I wrote about Pikachu getting a tummy ache from eating a bad apple Uh and going to the doctor. Cool. Oh my god, that's great. 
and for the and for some reason in little young head i felt like oh him putting the, like the doctor putting the stethoscope on pikachu would heal him mm. so the doctor just puts the stethoscope on pikachu and listens to his heartbeat and he gets fixed from a bad gesture. That was the poem. I remember it very well because it was like one of the first moments I even drew. That's <laughs> like awesome. that was illustration. <laughs> that's great. Oh my god, that's so wonderful. I I just it sounds like Pikachu just needed somebody to listen to to him. <laughs> maybe that just explains my childhood because I wanted to be listened. So maybe mm. that was like uh self portrait maybe yeah could be could be i think it's amazing how honest children can be right because at that young age we usually we haven't learned how to filter out things yet yeah and just also i feel children have like so this is what's like i i'm usually scared by children it's not because like i just don't want to handle them or they're just going to throw tantrums i'm just scared like one of them is going to because the way they process information is a bit like different mm-hmm. and i'm scared that one of them will just say a fact to, like something like how they think about something mm-hmm. and be like that will just like change my life i'm just like i don't i don't need that energy in my life that now <laughs> at least so like in case someone was like uh, i don't know i can't think of anything because that's why children are, are too unique like i cannot come up with any of the ideas that they have Mm-hmm. and they would just be like well this is a revolution i'm going to steal that idea but also at the same same time takes give me a decade to think about it because <laughs> too heavy right right yeah i think definitely children has a way of pointing at certain certain things there's no sense of editing the way that adults tend to have which is both good and bad you know because they could say yeah some very painful things without realizing that those things that they say are painful but children and just have a way of like being honest but also like being like the icon from learning from mistakes is like i mean i feel like children have like this ridiculous speed at like recovery like childhood breaks their bone they're going to get better like much faster than an adult mm-hmm. so i feel like they're of their learning is too fast compared to adults for example like i grew up in iraq and the, the major language being spoken is arabic mm-hmm. and i know that some relatives who grew up in iraq but left iraq and went to the uk for example lived there mm-hmm. and their children just ended up being like bilingual mm-hmm. even without like studying much for it like they just interacting with friends interact with the friends they make in the like whatever they are and also attracted with their past just they pick it up they pick up being bilingual without really much, like passive without needing to study for it which is kind of i want to say i don't want to say scary but it's just impressive mm. and it's just uh, really wonderful and whereas me being 27 years old i can barely keep on with duolingo without <laughs> it scolding scold, scolding me like why are you leaving french you are losing your streak or something i'm just like please let me let me just sleep in for today oh my god yes yes i think this is a new thing that they started i think i just gotten a, um 
an email the other day saying saying that it was disappointed in me. I didn't read it, but <laughs> I was saying something <laughs> like that. I was just like, oh my god, I do not need this guilt tripping. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you do it. Please stop. <laughs> Duolingo is just so. This, they skip this, this German phrase that was like translates to the bear eats the cheese. <laughs> or like, if, no, it was the bear tries on the dress. <laughs> because sometimes you like weird, really weird sentences mm-hmm. to translate. And people, and I commented on it as like, at, le- at least there are sizes that fit the bear. Oh. <laughs> and to this day, I get email notifications that someone has commented on that <laughs> sentence. And I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> Let that bear be fabulous. Please. Oh my God. Yes, yes. And it's it's a very practical comment, too. I mean, I think it's, it's a very realistic comment and that people should appreciate. Um, but yeah, I, I still have something. I still get comments on something that I, I unfortunately was really gung ho about like two years ago. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, yeah. I was wrong. <laughs> but before we veer off too far, <laughs> I, would, I would love to bring it back to your poem, which is uh, again called Cleaning the Graves. And I wonder if uh, you wouldn't mind reading it for us and then we can talk about it. This is uh, Cleaning the Graves. Is it okay if I give a content warning? Uh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Content warning for eating disorder and uh, uh, mention of graves. Mm. Cleaning the Graves. Every fall we would visit the family cemetery. Abati lying beneath a ceramic entryway my parents paid handsomely for. Next to my mama Enti, a couple joining hands between the piles of dirt. My mother uncorks the rose water and tells us to clean the graves with our hands. We feel the dirt begging us to spare a spot to tell of the aging. My dad gives us Babati's Quran and we read passages for them to wake up to. Story time for the dead, I called it. I read Surat al-Nur, one describing Allah's light. Babati must have heard me because he cried for me. The clouds in the sky told me so. My brother asks me if I'm okay. With my hands clutched to my chest like a Christian, I tell him I feel light in my chest. It hurts. He gets worried for half a second without noticing the earth vibrating beneath my feet. Babati tells me to read the Quran is to eat it with caution, holy refluxing with bile upon the gravestones. My mother tells me that's a good clean. My tears spoken by skies unknowing of the sick in my mouth. Allah's light eating away at my grief, hacking with his fruit tree lamps, darkening, darkening all the clouds. Mama Auntie checks in on me, asks me to open up my mouth, examines my sweet tooth, she's content, goes back to her soil, praising Babati. He didn't underspoil us. I haven't eaten in the last month more than a meal every day. My mom worries, feeds me her heart, I spit it out, unknowing of all the blood she needed to make it, with her skin, bruised dermis made of rubber and cracking glass. My father gives me yasmin flowers, 
to lay on their beds. I asked him of the manolia tree, the one whose flowers bore pearls, wet lamps that shone at nights for the fruit bats. He tells me she bore no more flowers this season because of all the smoke her cat had to go through. I couldn't visit Babati and Mama Enti anymore. The family's resting place became a hunting ground, silent and deadly in Abu Ghraib. I think of Babati and Mama Enti under the skies, unable to talk to us in the language of the clouds, their hands restless, reading the graveyards, searching for the keep out sign to tear down. Thank you. Ooh, this poem, my God, there's so, there's so much in it. It's so wonderful. And it's only what, like, it's a prose poem. It's like about two thirds of a page, less than that. Yeah. There's so much in it. When did you write it? So I was starting to write a series of poems about my family mm-hmm. at home. And I wanted to talk about, other, like, I tried to write this poem, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. I think I wrote it around last year. Okay. It was around the time when um, I was actually inspired by uh, another poet, uh, Tarn in Great House. Oh, yeah. She just published Yeah, she just published a book of poems that are amazing. And, mm-hmm. um, she had a poem, a prose poem as well, on the glass poetry mm-hmm. called uh, Phlebotomy. Uh, and that poem, kind of, I wanted to like mimic the style, uh, not really mimic, just I was inspired by that poem to write it in such a way that it just like goes kind of like I wanted to write it in that way. And mm-hmm. it just like, I was like, I wanted to write about my family because it felt like the ritual of us going to the cemetery it felt like a story. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to write, and sometimes the poem just guides you along. Right. And then it went into like, this kind of like, eating disorder. I was also like having really bad relapse of uh, eating disorder at the time because I just finished my master's and I didn't know what to do and I was mm. scared of just going home, right. especially after coming uh, coming out. And yeah. uh, I kind of started writing about this and just uh, the poem just guides me through it. So short answer around uh, 2009. 2019 in uh, I want to say July July yeah I guess before you knew that you were going to start doing your is it PhD yeah it's a PhD yeah so before you knew you were getting into this program right yeah um actually it was uh, it was a gap I took a gap year because uh, at the time at 2019 I applied to uh, a bunch of places and I didn't get into any of them. Mm. So at the time, that kind of elevated my stress to a new level. Right. Uh, like difficulty levels are maybe easy, medium, hard, extreme, inferno difficulty. <laughs> so it went between the extreme and the inferno difficulty for me at the time. Mm. And um, thankfully, uh, my previous advisor gave me a job at the time. Mm. And I applied again, and then I got in. And Great. Twenty, yeah, this was in twenty twenty that I got accepted. Okay, great, great. I I couldn't tell from the poem itself if, um, you know, when you were talking about you were scarcely eating a meal a day, if that was um, it didn't really occur to me that it was uh, eating disorder 
So um, I, I wonder if you want to um, talk about that. Um, well, for me, it's kind of like, um, I mean, I wasn't diagnosed with eating disorder, but it was to the point like people were worried about me at the time. Mm. Like my ex at the time was worried about me. My, I had friends that were worried about me because I just didn't want to eat mm. at all. Just like I was barely eating a meal a day. Mm-hmm. And uh, thankfully, it didn't last more than three weeks at the time. So I feel I got like the longer end of the stick of it. And didn't really manifest itself into anything. But uh, at the time, I was really. Well, it was because I think it was also like I was. It was not only I was unhappy with my body, but it was just like my relationship with religion mm-hmm. has been uh, very weird at the time. I think this poem also touches upon it. Like, because, like, I I still identify as a Muslim, and mm-hmm. I still identify as having a connection to Allah. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, it's kind of like my relationship with the religion is changing, and I'm thinking, like, I was thinking about it, like, the religion, like, doesn't like excess, it doesn't like overindulgence, and at the time, I think, with all the stress and all of that, it's just, like, kind of burdened my subconscious a bit mm-hmm. too much, and it's just, like, I wasn't able to eat for a while because of it. Yeah. And, like, at this time, thinking about it, just, like, that's kind of how I felt with it. And also, it was around the time that I came out as non-binary, and also it was just, like, kind of, uh, it's just, people keep talking about passing. It's not as the gender you want to be portrayed as, and, and like, like, uh, so people would just, like, immediately be, not give you much trouble, like, just identify you and be accepting of you. Mm-hmm. I think at the time, it's just, like, I like how do you come out as non-binary to your parents? I still haven't come out to them, because in Arabic, we don't have a way to say that. Even, like, when I was looking at, like, you know, are there, do we have non-binary pronouns in Arabic? And, and it's just like I wasn't, I wasn't happy with what I found. It's just like the most you can find is like entama, uh, like when you say to someone it's like you, it's like enta or enti for uh, male and female, and then like for mm-hmm. non-binary, there's this word that people have come up with, which is entama, and I feel like there's something. I didn't feel like I was portrayed in that, and mm-hmm. also my parents are old school. Like their way of their way of accepting is very weird to me still. And mm-hmm. I think at that time I was talking to my, to them daily. And I think that kind of like drove me back to like remembering roots of my family and like the ceremonies that connected us and the rituals that we had. Mm-hmm. Such as like visiting our the graveyard after uh, my grandfather died, who I, who we nick me and my brother nicknamed as Babat, which means, well, for us we it's just a, it's just a way you say like friend or mm-hmm. something like Babat is just like uh, you are your friend, so I will call you Babati, but it's like a very like a very non traditional like a very traditional way of saying you're a dear friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of like, uh, like the way I rationalize it, it's kind of like that. And I think when I was talking to, like, I was undergoing therapy, and that's kind of like, and also when I was a child, I was a very picky 
sure. I also didn't eat as a child, uh, much as a child. I was way pickier than now. Just my mom just agonized getting me to eat anything when I was a child. So it kind of like relapsed into me. That kind of like image of me just like just not eating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think on the oh my gosh, that bad. Yeah, I, I mean, you definitely talk about the how your mom worries, and I love this image of the idea of her feeding you her heart, and this idea that you're spitting it out. You well, I guess it's because I also come from the old country, so this idea, this sort of guilt feeling that you get when you feel like you're not being appreciative, even if somehow maybe. Their solution is not necessarily the solution that would work for you. It's just, but I mean, you could see them trying, and you can see them worrying, and obviously, you want to. There is a sense that you want to help, you want to be better. At the same time, it's almost like there's a a little bit of a helplessness of it uh, to it as well. Um, this is just yeah. happening. But I found it interesting that even though food plays a a large role, it's a Common threat in this poem itself, the idea of, of of any kind of eating disorder doesn't really. It's not very apparent. It's、um, pretty well hidden in here, I would say.、Uh, yeah, I feel also like a lot of people just like this is. I I feel like eating disorders. Oh, like it's also with mental health disorders. It's one of. The reasons why we call them disorders is because you cannot identify it. Like、mm. a syndrome is something you can identify. It's like you look at someone and say, "Oh, that person is like has, like、uh, you can tell someone who has a disease." And like in the medicine, they would say it's a combination of signs and symptoms that affect someone.、Right. And you'll say the signs and symptoms are basically、uh, signs are something like I think it was. This is too long. Long. Since I practiced pharmacy, <laughs> I but it's like signs. I remember, like you see the signs, like you identify the signs in someone else.、Mm-hmm. The symptoms is like you say, I have symptoms. I can feel like I can feel constipated or something. That's a symptom.、Mm-hmm. You don't look at someone and say, You're you're oh, you're constipated. I can tell. But、um, <laughs> the reason why they call mental health disorders is because disorders is just you do not you do not. See, like things. You do、mm-hmm. not see like、uh, something telling the person.、Mm-hmm. It's usually like that. It's just like sometimes I feel there is a bit of taboo, and like when we go through something by ourselves, it's just like hard to tell someone like I'm going through this thing. You、mm-hmm. want to show your good self to each other.、Mm-hmm. I think that's why we care so much about how we look. How we present ourselves to people because we want always to be seen in this one kind of light. We don't want someone to see the ugly part of us, and that's like the like the monsters we have to fight in our、mm-hmm. heads.、Mm-hmm. And eating disorders just sometimes like people just don't like. You would be like all of a sudden some someone would just take so much courage just to say, "I have this disorder." Coming and opening up to it,、right. I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to go to neuroscience. Like、mm-hmm. I'm doing my PhD in neuroscience because it's like I feel there is a science that is very concrete behind that,、mm-hmm. and I want to be able to contribute to that field and be able to. If it like if my work 
will lead to someone like I don't know a test that can make everyone shut up about like their advice like oh have you tried being happier or have you tried just eating or something like that or like uh, have you tried not worrying too much if like if if I'm able to do something like that I would be so happy for everything you know, like I would be I would have no regrets <laughs> yeah yeah I think you know people mean well but the meaning well doesn't translate to any kind of practical advice uh, in fact it could be very frustrating to be receiving those kinds of advice that are completely and utterly kind of useless I mean it just yes and sometimes people give you advice that sounds like they think you're a moron and they're they're somehow the only one in the world who knows you know what to do about this thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh yeah i i never thought about that yeah sure never thought about not being stressed no <laughs> <laughs> one I hate is like when sometimes like people would say well I used to be sad when this thing happened to me and it's like it's not the same thing stop comparing stuff <laughs> you know it's just like when people I don't know it's just like you like when someone like needed to go to the hospital for well let's just say an example like because sometimes this happens like people had to go to the emergency because they're going through like a very hardcore panic attack mm. and Someone would say, "Oh, you went to the emergency for that. You're you're being over dramatic over your stress. Like I get stressed. My boss didn't give me a promotion that day. What did you think that made me feel like? It's <laughs> like, no, no, that's different. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think people think about panic attacks or understand exactly what they are. Well, partly because well, they don't encounter and and it's not talked about that much. I mean, I I've heard that it could mimic heart attacks. So I would I would imagine if they thought they were having a heart attack, they would be going to the emergency room as well. Yeah, that's very, like it's very like even looking at like the the symptoms they go through is just like also very. very it's quite similar like if you go to the nitty-gritty of it mm. from a science level it's also like it's just some things that i don't need to go into the science but also so like there okay. are neurotransmitters in the brain like brain chemicals that just like activate the system that makes you just like everything is more activated so when things are more, more activated there needs to be more energy more energy needs oxygen oxygen comes from hyperventilating mm. and hyperventilating means more oxygen in your blood and, and your heart is like, I need to pump this blood to the brain. And like, sometimes like there's, there's kind of like a bit of hierarchy in which like what systems needs to take the most blood. So sometimes like it would drain blood from their extremities. So people would feel like this numbness in their hands from it at mm -hmm. the extreme cases, of course. Mm -hmm. This yeah. is how I remember it. Yes. Oh, wow. Well. Yeah, I, I think it's, again, very difficult for people to relate who hasn't had that and they don't think of it. I think a lot of people live through watching things in the media, you know, whether it's news or, or more likely some kind of TV drama. And TV drama doesn't, it's not like they're not factual. They're just, even if you're no, watching, you know, some emergency room drama, you know, like some hospital drama, it's not factual. Yeah. 
but I think people people forget that um, and they they somehow that is in the back of their mind when they're talking to uh, those who actually have experienced the real symptoms it's hard to <laughs> so Back to your poem, you talked about a little bit about the um, your relationship with religion and why um, you know you, you have having a difficult time with it. Um, even so, uh, I again uh, similar to the eating disorder, it's it doesn't. It seems like actually that from this poem itself that um, at least your relationship with God is very solid. I feel like I have, like, like I said, I still identify as Muslim, and like I still have this habit of like this weird thing I have of like every time I would go to sleep, like I would have to like recite prayers mm. because I always had this fear about like not being able to wake up in the morning, mm. and I was it makes me feel, feel like better about sleeping whenever I like read them in my head. Mm. Also, it's just like every time when I'm very like when my when I'm stressed and all that I always find comfort in reading the Qur'an. Mm -hmm. And actually the surah, surah that I am mentioned in this poem, Surah Noor, is one of my favorites because it, it describes uh, the light of Allah mm. as just like, just the way they describe it is like, I can't translate it well, but the way I imagined it in my head was like a fruit tree that had the lamps for fruit. Oh. It's like, that's that's kind of like how I imagined it, and that's kind of like an image stuck in my head. Mm. And it made me, and I like, I really feel like I still observe Ramadan. I still like whenever like something good happens, I just I'd say like Alhamdulillah, which roughly translates thank God. Mm. And uh, and like when something bad, when I do something bad. I know I do something bad. I do, like, like you know, say what we say for forgiveness, which is astaghfirullah, which means I beg forgiveness of God. Mm. And, but it's just like these things like still come in naturally. It doesn't feel like something alien to me. Mm -hmm. And like, despite being like, even though I say despite being gay and non-binary, is just like kind of like I don't like. I still feel like Islam still, I feel well with Islam in a way. Like you, like a lot of people practice Islam in a way that's different. And I feel for me like Islam is like a religion has become such a private practice for me. It's just more like keeping it between me and God. But also at the same time, it's just like, I used to think like it needs to be private. Like you need not to talk to it with anyone about it. But I feel like, would feel alone being private with your practice and say like this is how I practice. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna tell anyone about it. But there was one last year. It was like when COVID happened. Mm -hmm. We had Eid and I was alone at Eid. And one of my friends was like, "There's uh, there's a poetry event for uh, Muslim people that are gay." And I'm just like, "What? <laughs> Why did I not know of this?" And I went to the poetry, it had an open mic there, it was so beautiful. Mm. And I was like, wow, there's a lot of people that actually, like there's like people who do like five prayers a day, there are people that just pray in their own way, there are people who just like, just, you know, be Muslim, but also 
also be critical of the religion itself in some mm-hmm. manners. Just understand like there's like parts of the religion that you feel represented with, and parts of the religion that you feel is outdated and more sort of mm-hmm. like more sort of like a temporal function, like, mm-hmm. a temporal, like a, a, an advice for that time period, mm-hmm. and and it's just like that's something I feel. I've had a complicated relationship with the religion on paper, mm-hmm. but in my head it keeps coming up like, no, like the things are okay, like things are okay, yeah, like there is no, you're not gonna, I'm not, I don't feel like if I go outside during a thunderstorm I'll be struck by lightning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's just feel, yeah. And also, you know, this is the. I don't know. I always find it uh, ironic that people who are who use religion uh, to kind of exclude other people. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> especially uh, the Abrahamic religions, right? It's like you worship this god that's so powerful, that's everywhere, that is all knowing. Um, if this god did not want someone like that someone like whoever that they're excluding to exist it is very easy for that god to just get rid of that someone right yeah so why why would the god not do that if it finds that existence so offending so i don't i never understood that um but then i'm i'm not a religious person myself so and there is a difference as you explain both within the poem itself and also you talking about the poem, about your relationship with the religion and then with God, is that everybody has their own relationship with God via whatever religion that they believe in or lack of religion, whatever it is, right, that that relationship. But the religion as it is taught by institutions can be very different. Yeah, especially... Like, I remember one example of, like, because back home, like, every every school teaches religion as part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. I remember I had this friend, I'm not going to name them, but basically their name translates roughly to to be immortal. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, when it's translated, it's weird, but in Arabic, it's just, a, it's, a, it's an, like, it's a name. Like, people right. are named like that. Right. But it, it, it sounds more badass. As when it's <laughs> but I remember the teacher, the religion teacher at the time, was like doing like a roll call. I was like, "Oh, what's your name? What's your name?" And then when she got to my friend and she he told her, her his name, and she just went, "Oh, that's a that's a haram name. That's a bad name. The only thing that can be immortal is God. How could you be named like that? What gave your parents the right to?" like that and my friend was just like felt horrible throughout Aww. the entire day and went back just like really really sad throughout Aww. the day and then his parents were like just like his parents were like had to talk with the religious teacher because he didn't want to come to class and I'm just I was like why like I feel like like people who teach religion are just so they're just like experts at being, at being assholes <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a invested self-righteousness to it, right? Because they have to believe that what they believe of their own belief is the correct one. Otherwise, 
they must question why are they put in a position to be teaching that particular religion. So it's yeah. almost like it's kind of feeds into itself, and it lends uh, the people who are in those positions this tendency towards egotism. Yeah, right. One of the things um, that that I found was quite interesting, um, which is why I, I actually I wrote my poem. And re in reaction to your poem, because the, what I got out of the poem is not what you explained, which I'm actually really happy about because uh, it's nice. So nice. To, yeah, it's really nice to hear uh, the you know what the what the author thinks of or why yeah. uh, they written a certain piece. But um, so like what I got overall from this piece is there's a lot of sentimentality of the past and of you know, your uh, relationship with, uh, a real relationship with uh, grandparents and a very loving relationship and also the sense, especially towards the end, of not being able to go back, uh, not being able to return for uh, whatever reason, probably because very, I knew very little about you apart from where you came from, <laughs> that I have projected some aspects of... Um, my own understanding of what's going on geopolitically on that and so if you know it just felt to me like <laughs> it felt to me like you know it's it's overall it's about po a poem about not being able to go back to a place even if you wanted to so it's from that point of view that i wrote my poem and it's called rubicon which uh, is a river i i, I should probably have looked it up i i mean i i think it's from either greek or roman uh, religion um or myth mythology uh, a river that once you cross it you can no longer go go back so um, yeah I, I looked it up and it's uh, the only thing i got was, uh, well i didn't look uh, I, I didn't like do a much deeper dive but i really liked uh, the, the meaning was like when you overcome like when you like it's kind of like the point of no return is like when you, right. I think it came from crossing the Rubicon River, I don't right. remember. Yeah. Like, because Caesar like claimed Rome by crossing the Rubicon River or something like that. Yeah. I'm bad with history. I failed, I failed history when I was in high school. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I didn't even get that part right because I read it a long time ago, but yeah, it does have something to do with Caesar um, crossing and, and, his conquests, and so it's not even mythology; it's just <laughs> Roman history. So anyway, I'll we <laughs> between the two of us, we'll get that right. <laughs> so I'll read it, and then we can talk about it. Rubicon. Have you ever stood there? You think it was heaven on earth, the gentle rolling of a hill, filigree by the bubbling white tongue of pacifist waves licking away at the dramatic cliffs. There you envy residents with a forever view, even if they're obligated to hold a headstone above their head, like children being punished for bad deeds. The whispers of those hitch on gentle breezes, you let your brain rest in disbelief. Why would they do that in this place? And like a sheer dive from those cliffs, your heart would plummet when that has been done to you. And I witnesses 
will have lost sight of those ethics they've pinned to their tongue, like the drain aquifers that landscape this Elysium, from which you have been shoved out, even if memories tell you its cosmetic beauty is separate from those that disfigure it. You think of the three nations that came before, and the all but extinguished indigenous tongue, and wonder, is it? Like that sometimes it just takes you there. You know, like you can like you just imagine the place and it's just like oh, so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean I wanted it to be a little bit vague, um, so that people can have their own mental image of whatever gorgeous land they think of. Yeah. I have been like when I read it the first time I'm like I'm imagining some place that's really like something by the sea or by like a shore it's like a village by the shore and like apparently like there's duality here that i feel like it's just like in the first the first stanza <laughs> i feel like you're painting something beautiful and then like the second stanza you'd say like they're obligated to hold a headstone above their head like children being punished for bad deeds and i'm like oh there's some there's something more complex, something like hidden behind the beauty. And I was just like, it kind of like took me through the moment, just like very curious. Mm. And it's just like, and then also the way you're saying like uh, obligated to hold the headstone above their head, like children being punished. Like I feel that's also like some, like it's kind of similar to how children were punished in my, my in Iraq. So it's kind of like similar to that. Well, oh. they're like forced to, they're kind of like, well, actually they were forced to be in the corner and they would hold their leg up, like one leg up. So it's kind of like reminds me of like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I think U.S. schools had that as well at some point. I don't know about the leg, holding one leg up. That's That's a new one. I don't think I've... That's, that's difficult. That's quite the stretch. It's also very bad for circulation. <laughs> yeah, you would have to hold your hands up and uh, lift one leg up. Wow. Yeah, and you would have to hold it for like, I don't know, they would specify like, depending on the bad deed you have done. Like, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like 10 minutes, sometimes it's like, no, throughout the whole class or something. And that's, that's terrible. I haven't seen it done for the the whole class. I mean, I, I would cry if I was that cool. Yeah, that's really difficult to do. I mean, you know, yeah. even even yogis, I don't know if they can do like, <laughs> you know. I mean, I'll, a lot of poses are just like, oh, just hold it for like five minutes or so or less. Right, right. But, you know, you, you have to, like, they don't, nobody punishes you, you know, <laughs> if you can't do it. So, I was just wondering because I feel like there's like there's a feeling that there's some something like it was a good place, but then something like took it away. So I was like wondering, like, is it like was it taken over by corporations, or is it like turned into something different? Because that's kind of like how when you say like the like the drain 
aquifers that land escape this Elysium is just it it feels like there's something like dark about like what happened to it. So it's kind of like is like I'm more like curious about this. This could be like a metaphorical, but it was just like something I had. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to convey is that also just this idea of what goes into something beautiful, right? Like what is behind the beauty, what amount of work, what pretense, what savagery goes into making something beautiful. Yeah. So it's a place that, as with many places in the world, is suffering from climate change and it's a place that was not getting a lot of rain. It was having drought. And yet, on the look of it, it's very lush. It's gorgeous. And I learned from another scientist who specializes, I think, in water conservation. He was talking about, I remember this person told me that, oh, you see all these beautiful plants that everybody has in their, in their yards. This is draining the aquifers that there's so much water used in order to make these plants gorgeous. Wow. Yeah, so so it's like, what does it take to make something beautiful? And also how we tend to talk about the beauty in a place that we visit without thinking about the horribleness that might have happened before, you know, especially <clears throat> in the U.S. Basically, almost anywhere you go in the U.S. is somebody else's land that, got taken over through invasion, through genocide, through these uh, wars, uh, gender-based violence uh, within those uh, those violent contexts as well and that are not talked about, um, the slavery that goes on, uh, that went on in this country to make it the way it is, all of it. And there is something personal as well because something did happen to me there that made this place, despite knowing how beautiful it is, I can't return to it because it's so it's it's associated with such painful memory so all of that yeah that's really sad it's just yeah like there are some moments like this will make me think a lot about like going anyplace because in Maine there's like there's lots of like nature places that it's like I I haven't really read much into but Sometimes, like, it makes me feel like, like, you would think those, like, nature trails and stuff like that, like, those are, like, natural, they're like that, but also, like, someone definitely made a path through it, mm-hmm. and just, like, what did they do other than that? So it makes me, like, wonder, like, this poem now makes me want to research, like, are hikes really natural or, or something, or, because there's a lot of it here in Maine, but also at the same time, it's just, like... America is, like, the whole history of it is based on, like, genocide and taking land from the indigenous people who lived here. And mm-hmm. then, like, you would, like, sometimes I would cross my mind, like, I mean, back home we didn't have that much to think about, like, when it comes to these kind of things. Because, oh, well, first, I don't know from history standpoint if we have taken land from people or we just, like, were there. Mm-hmm. But I... I think it's much like the extent of what America has done is much way more catastrophic compared to us mm-hmm. because like uh, Middle East are just like that's where like in Babylon like that's one of the in Mesopotamia mm-hmm. is one of the first 
nations that came out of it. So, so it's like it's just like civilization took its course there. But then like how thinking about like land here is just like which like you'd feel I feel like sometimes like thinking about indigenous people and stuff like that and, and I would think like which land have I, am I sitting on? Like who belong here? Mm-hmm. And kind of like, and you look into like, uh, there's a, someone who was elected official who was a two spirit and Native American. Mm-hmm. They had this uh, tagline that says, "Give me, uh, what was it? Uh, I want my land back." Mm-hmm. And sometimes they would put content i follow them on instagram and they put up content that was about like uh, the different na- uh, the different uh, uh, native american tribes that li- lived in maine and uh, i'm like wow there's so much that i don't know about like the original inhabitants of these spaces that i am visiting or seeing or like working in and it just makes me wonder like whose land used to be this kind like it and it's scary that to think like a whole, whole a civilization and, and like was like just was subjugated so much genocide by like the people who came here from Europe. And it's just like even for us back home, we didn't know the history of mm-hmm. America. We just thought like, oh, it's just like they found an empty land and populated it. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at the history books and you do a deep dive it's just like no it's just like this land is like it's like fertile like it has been fertile because of blood yeah yeah i mean it is it's been cultivated it's been cultivated through many generations of people's blood sweat and tears that are not being appreciated and it continues to be a, a incredible point of contention because then there are nativist uh, movements, and by nativist, I don't mean indigenous nativist. <laughs> I mean people who's been here for like four or five generations and who's like, oh yeah, this is our land. It's <laughs> just like, uh, you know, it's you know we have proof that it's not, and and I mean it also goes back to like human migration, right? Because there are places where we don't we don't know enough of our history. It's not like we can, you know, put all of us somewhere else in order to dig into our land to find out the history of it. Even if we had all the archaeologists yeah. in the world doing it and all the technology in the world, uh, we don't have another piece of land that we can go to to live in order to really fully understand our history, the human history, besides all the other history. <laughs> Because we're such a blip on the on the Earth's uh, timeline uh, as humans, as our species. Yeah. So, sometimes I would just wonder, like, how much of history has been like rewritten mm-hmm. to like to satisfy like people's agendas? You know, it's just like, no, 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 I didn't commit genocide. I freed them because, like, for my country, like, like also it's just um, I. I'm not meaning to compare because, like, when America invaded Iraq in 2003, it's because, like, our, our like, president at the time, Saddam Hussein, had uh, WM, uh, what was it, WMTs, like, just nuclear weapons. 
and weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, that's the and they were oh and, and then people would be like oh like this is how like basically uh, oh we don't like we know like he has it it's just okay where's your proof like we don't have a proof we need to invade you to have a proof <laughs> and then after like when the invasion was like I don't want to say done because we still we still have like I still feel like we are still being invaded mm. and. Uh, it's just uh, like they came in and they're like, well, we didn't fight devil MPs, but we need to stay here to protect you. It was like, no, you're like doing things wrong. You're killing people, you're torturing people. And it's just, uh, I have like, it seems like a, when I kind of like grew older a bit and like kind of like went through things, it's just like America was like wanted our oil. And our oil was like we had lots of oil, and then like there comes like a economical like when you factor in an economy, and it's just like for some reason like America is just like even though like it seems like to me it's like they still haven't learned from history, they haven't learned from their mistakes, and like they don't realize that they have done something wrong, and they are assisting like this is like it's kind of like a tradition, and it's like kind of I've seen it with like my country, like in Yemen, and also in like a lot of places that are impacted in Iran, and God knows what's next, <laughs> because like all of these happen, I don't know, it's just it's like, oh, it's every president's era is just like, oh, what's next, what do we do, what do we think about, like, there's so much, uh, America has so many fingers in a lot of, in the Middle East, and like, also, like Afghanistan, and uh, it's kind of scary when you think about it. It's just it's a, a lot of history of America. I mean, the point I was making is like people here, like whenever I talk to people, when I tell them I'm from Iraq, they're like, "Oh, we saved you from Saddam Hussein." <laughs> I'm like, "No, you invaded us," and that's why I use the term "invaded." Mm-hmm. Because I want to make sure like people like know what it felt like to ask a lot of people. It's mm-hmm. like we were invaded and just and like it's the same thing as like with like with America when it was conceived. It was invaded by people from Europe. Mm-hmm. And that's how we have uh, you have this land that you have now. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just it's kinda I do want to say sad, but also it's just I have very, I have very difficult opinions about America, and just like, first, like people would say, like, why do you end up in America? And I'm just like, that's a conversation for another time. Just because, like, <laughs> I'd rather be alive than dead. Right, <laughs> right. Like, yeah. I mean, that's the sense just that like, I I get from the the end of your poem, right? Is that it's no longer this land that you cherish, this land with with which you have this deep connection. Uh, you can't go back to yeah. it. And, yeah. I, you know, that's what I got out of it, despite no matter what problems you might be having with it, which is like in the middle of the poem, especially where you talked about some of the nuances of it. But it is a land that you cherish that you I feel like you can't really go back to. Yeah, just like, Ever since that day, like, it was like the last time we went to the cemetery, and it was raining that day. That's why, like, I felt like my 
my grandfather who looked up and my grandparents looked up to me mm. through the cloud, through the sky. And then like after that, I haven't seen my cemetery since then. Mm. And I'm very, I have a very close connection to my grandmother and my grandfather because like those were two, like those were the two, like the grandparents I grew up with and I loved them and I connected with them a lot. And to the point like my grandfather, I considered like a, like a very, very dear friend. Mm. And uh, like I haven't seen those graves since 2011. Oh, wow. And it's just because it got so hostile mm-hmm. in that place. And like they were just taken over by militias. And it was like, that's why it got like, so dangerous to go there. And I would keep imagining like my grandparents are like wondering why haven't they visited yet. And they're like, and for me, it's just like, it's too dangerous to go back, you know? Mm-hmm. And especially, especially for someone who is uh, gay and non binary, like the country is still not safe enough for people like me and mm. it's just like yeah we flee to america we flee to sweden because we feel like we can do more like something better like we need to give our life a bit of purpose mm-hmm. and we feel like we haven't told our story yet right. and for me it's like that story is like science i want to do good science and well, that conference was like, it was like, well, two strikes for me because it's like I'm gay and non-binary. Mm-hmm. No one gets that back home. And then like the third strike was like, just I'm, I'm unable to do any research back home. Like I can't do any research into neuropsychiatric disorders, which is what I'm, I really, oh, that's my passion. It's just I want to do like something related to that. And I was like, and like the same thing with a lot of people. Like a lot of people are like, for us, like there are doctors who can't practice anymore. Mm-hmm. Like gynecologists, like male gynecologists cannot have to practice at home because like people would target them and saying like, you're a, like a man and you're practicing on a woman. How, how could you do this? And they would just like start to get targeted and get like at worst like beaten up or like beaten up if not dead. Mm-hmm. And they would have to go to a different country to practice because some of the people, like a lot of the doctors just want to help. They want to, you know, treat patients. Mm. And also like, I'm, I'm not going to go into like kind of the, like the gynecology and what are like gynecology and how like some of the problematic nature of like, if like some kind of gynecologist just do like do my practice and, and things like that. But I'm just assuming with good intention that they were they were doing their job because like a lot of the the doctors we know like are good doctors yeah i think um that's the thing right with um a country in instability uh one of the things that you lose is the ability to there's a lot of livelihoods that can no longer be sustained because of this lack of stability experience invasion experience war and this total breakdown of um, security and uh, obviously my poem is not as you know doesn't point to as chaotic a situation I mean personally it was 
it was very chaotic for me. Uh, it forced me to move, but yeah, it was like uh, like reading the poem. I did get the sense that it was like like kind of a feeling of helplessness that I related to, mm. and then like it seemed like just the way you worded something made it like like just your what can you do. Like in this, like, what can you do to help with this? It's like, there's nothing you can do. It's just like you're using the word like trained aqua landscape, this Elysian, which feels like I related a lot to the helplessness that came from this. It's just how can you change this Elysium so that it doesn't take away like the resources of another place? Right. You know? Right. I mean, we want Elysiums, right? We want to be able to live in somewhere beautiful because it has it has a physical and psychological effects that, that are very positive. At the same time, if living in those places means that we have to commit horrendous acts against other people, people that we, we yep. imagine as the other in order to do horrible things to them, is that worth That's the price? Right. You know, what price do we pay for Elysium? If it means that we are uh, hurting people that we label as the others in order for us to live with ourselves in order to hurt them as the others, then what is the cause of living uh, in heaven on earth? Is it truly heaven? Yeah. That's, that's profound. I'm just like, that's making me think. <laughs> Mm. This is the sounds idi- a bit like idiotic, but I I was watching Doctor Who yesterday, mm. and there was like this one episode about this like going to the future, and there's this hospital that can treat any disease, like they can treat all of the diseases, mm-hmm. everything. They had every everyone go there to get treated. Like it turns out that they were were actually like having people infected with all the diseases so that they, they can take, like, they can test on them, mm. like, in the, underground, in the underground, like, after, like, you know, when I get to the point of the show, I was like, oh, no, it's, uh, this is the oh, shit moment of the episode. And, like, <laughs> they had people, like, they were testing on that they had all of the diseases, and that's how they were able to, like, take whatever, whatever it is. It wasn't really, like, medically uh, sounding. At the time, I was like, oh, this is a silly episode and whatever, but then I was like, now let you explain this, but I was like, oh, is this a commentary on, like, the, whenever you go to, like, like the good places? And I'm just like, that, I missed that totally. <laughs> it, just, like, problems are underneath it. Yeah. What you said reminded me of, uh, there was an episode of Legal Show ages ago. <laughs> Uh, one of the episodes was about this particular legal case about using research that came out of the human experiments from the Holocaust, and it has a current, uh, it has at that time a current medical benefit. But is it ethical to use it? I feel like we, as a species, we ha- are so good at rationalizing that we can, in our minds, kind of play with timeline. And we can say, oh, because currently there are good uses for this thing that came out through horrendous methods, you know, like genocidal or human 
torture or human experimentation, like gynecology, for instance. Like oh, one of the things that I more recently learned was that how、um, the field of gynecology had been able to be improved through human testing on. African American bodies.、Uh, I think they were slaves at the time, or not even.、Uh, and there has been many cases of the U.S. I think even now testing on other people in other countries, pharmaceutical companies, and、yeah. using those results to treat wealthier Western nations. Yeah, there was like、um, something that was、uh, that was interesting. Also, it's just about the field of gynecology in general. Is that Menopause, for example, and like the realm of menopause, gynecology. There's like there's like that field is so stagnant, and not, not much research have went into it. And it's just like even though we have so much now, like there's so much we can do with the clinical trials. Like if you look at clinical trials right now for a drug, for example, a drug that cure I don't. And so they would put so much money into that, and it would end up in failure or something way better, way worse.、Um, you know, like a simple Google search in which you write down like, cancer field trials and like so many, you get so many things. Menopause, just like it's not just about clinical trials. Just use the resources, some other resources, to just look into how can people alleviate like menopausal symptoms. I feel like if menopause happened in men. It would have been fixed in a heartbeat, and the reason, like the science, like some of the scientists, well, not the scientists, but the something we have realized really is that menopause only occurs in humans and whales.、Mm. And people have said, like that's one, of, like that's one of the reasons why we can't test it on, like for example, something that is cheap, for like mice. I'm just like, no, you can now we can sequence. Someone's DNA on demand.、Mm-hmm. Like people can get like gene sequence, like their gene sequence. Like you can order if you get your gene sequence. They're like, oh, you're fifty percent Irish. You're thirty percent, I don't know, Scandinavian. You're ten percent, whatever. And and people tell me like they can't look into menopause. Like a simple way of looking into it is like look at the people who are having like very heavy like. Consequential menopausal symptoms,、uh, symptoms, and just like look at, compare them with not like people who don't, don't have like that bad. See like what symptoms are involved. Like the field of science has progressed so much that they can answer those things. I feel the field of gynecology not only like in, in this problematic history of just like having like racist roots of just testing on black women or, or like black things that are happening is something that. Just like annoying, also in clinical trials, for example, like the reason why they test so much on black people is that because they, I think there was a study that they are because of the compensation they get. It's like, and a lot of this is like a lot of the flyers they would have, they would post it on like I don't know if this is true anymore, but they used to post it on like really poor areas, which like health services do not are too expensive. Well. And in this world, it's like healthcare is really expensive, and like black people live in in places that they don't have access to these services, and they would just like do anything, like literally anything, like 
just give me compensation, give me a, something to hold on to, a hope or something. So people like prey on that. Oh my God, I think I accidentally stopped this recording. Okay, we're still, re- we're still recording. But anyway, we can continue this conversation after I finish the recording. So I really appreciate you spending the time to chat with me today. I just want to yeah. close our interview by asking you if you have any favor uh, online poetry events that you would recommend and also how people can follow you online. Favorite poetry events? No, those haven't been uh, happening uh, a lot, but um, well, my favorite one has to be like uh, Stone Soup Poetry. They still have an active community on Facebook, I feel, and they are doing weekly readings. Oh, and Port Veritas. Port Veritas does... Uh, Wonderful features every Tuesday. I have to plug them. They're wonderful, and uh, their MC is such a wonderful human being. Ooh. And uh, those are yeah, it's Port Veritas name. Like they deserve so much in this life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and people can follow me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I usually post uh, snarky science memes. So if you're into that, follow me. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> As I go through grad school, it's at Barakat. And so I didn't put my full last name because by then, like, Twitter would just like crash. I feel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it would be really interesting to see the longest names on Twitter. I think I think that would be very interesting data sleuthing. Um, but anyway, so thank yeah. you, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having space for me. Oh, cool. I really enjoyed this. Good, I'm glad. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.